Let's Talk Books. I'm Robin Van Auken, a writer and a teacher. My guest and I want to help you write your own book. We're sharing ideas about inspiration, book publication, and promotion. You can find the episode show notes, a free novel, guides, and tutorials at robinvanauken.com. Enjoy the show. It's episode number seven, and my guest is Lou Hunsinger, Jr., a newspaper writer and an author. Lou is the co-author of eight books, six of them he's written with me. His first writing partner was Dr. James Quiggle, an archivist at Penn State University. Together, the duo wrote about professional baseball in The Gateway to the Majors, published by Penn State Press. They also wrote a second book on Williamsport's baseball heritage, this time a photographic narrative for Arcadia Publishing. Then Lou and I began writing together, and we've published six local history books. We talk about his college days as a rogue reporter for the Gadfly, basically an underground newspaper that served as an alternative to his college paper. We also talk about our hometown newspaper and the interesting projects we worked on there. Lou remains a freelance writer and is celebrating his 15th year with Web Weekly, a free tabloid with a circulation of 58,000. You'll learn that Lou is disabled and how his impaired vision makes his ability to read and research difficult, but he's optimistic and grateful for the technological resources that make his work as a writer possible. Lou also mentions Mary, his beloved wife, who he lost after a brief but wonderful marriage, and how he imagines she's still by his side, guiding his hand as he continues to write. You can learn more about Lou and his books in the show notes at robinvanauken.com. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Robin Van Auken, the wholehearted author, and I'm here today with Lou Hunsinger, also known as Louis E. Hunsinger Jr. Lou is a writer and an author, and um, we're going to talk today about his passion. Hi, Lou. How are you? Fine. Fine. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me on the show. I want you to take a few minutes and introduce yourself to the people. And also, if you happen to hear any noise in the background, here's my disclaimer. I'm in my office and the dog is a little agitated. So you're going to hear her walking around and shaking her collar. Um, sorry about that. There's hunters outside. I'll try not to be unnerved by it. <laughs> well, she is actually a little unnerved today because we have uh, hunters out on the river. There's a lot of geese and ducks at the river today, and there the hunters are out shooting. Um, I actually opened up my back door and yelled a really mean, bad word out there <laughs> earlier because um, we have about 200, like I said, 200 Canada geese visiting along with a lot of ducks. And, you know, it's been so peaceful and restful watching them, you know, fish and play and hang out and then the hunters are walking around shooting their boomsticks and scaring them away. But anyway, enough about ducks and dogs and guns. Tell us about you and what you do, Lou. I'm a freelance writer. Uh, I've been interested in writing probably since I was in high school. I was on the high school newspaper uh, just in my senior year. I wish I had gotten involved earlier. I was on the paper was called the Billtown Banner, and my uh, journalism professor, or not professor, my teacher, was uh, Tony Sillo, uh, who uh, had extensive uh, experience in journalism. He uh, worked for the 
Sacramento Bee and a couple other and a Long Beach paper out in California, and he'd done some things there. He was also later on a journalism professor at, at what was then the Williamsport Area Community College, and he also, along with me and some other people, uh, write for Web Weekly. Although he he writes under a pseudonym, uh, he says basically so people don't bug him. <laughs> I have no such fears though. <laughs> but Tony was a very good uh, journalism teacher. Um, he taught, you know, taught us the the the, uh, the four W's or the five W's and all the other things. And he was very. I learned a lot from him. And then when I got to college, I took journalism again. And my journalism teacher there worked for Associated Press. In fact, he was working the uh, Associated Press uh, wire room when the wire photo from Joe Rosenthal's uh, legendary picture of the uh, flag raising in Iwo Jima came across the wire, and he took it off the wire and. You know, moved it around and things. So that was kind of an interesting story to hear from him. He also worked as a PR person for the college as well. I didn't learn quite as much about from him, but still, you know, there was a certain amount of crusty, you know, type of experience that he was able to pass along. And, uh, you know, I also took feature writing uh, from him as well. Luckily enough, in both cases, I was able to get A's, you know. Uh, I was very <laughs> pleased about that. And I worked for the uh, school newspaper. I, I wrote for the, what was called the Campus Voice. Uh, by the, by my junior year, I, some friends of mine and I felt that the uh, school newspaper was a little bit too much of a uh, mouthpiece for the administration and the <laughs> kind of the, uh, the kind of voices of, of uh, conformity and things like that. So we started our own paper with the help of, uh, a professor we had named Jim Percy called it the Gadfly, which was a name that was a previous uh, underground paper that they had there back in the late 60s. And so I, I wrote for that, too. Uh, we didn't really make much pretense of being objective. We were trying to shine a light on various problems that were going on the college at the time that the conventional campus paper wasn't uh, writing about. So we did some things like that. And I think in some ways we thought that the previous edition of the Gathlin in the late 60s ran into problems with the administration. They tried to uh, expel the editor of it, and so we were kind of excited by these tales, and we were kind of in some ways half hoping they'd try something like that with us so we could you know, be cause celebs on the campus, but it, it never happened that way. They apparently learned something in the 10 years between those two gadflies, but it was still a very good and interesting experience to, to be able to do that, and then uh, my writing career kind of went fallow for a while because I, although it did help me uh, when I, I got a job with the state police, I was a civilian uh, crime prevention officer. I set up neighborhood watch programs and very often I would draft news releases regarding that. And of course I utilized all my experience from, you know, what I'd learned previously to help me out with that, but it wasn't anything really serious as far as writing stories and things of that sort. So I did that for about 10 years and, uh, uh, finally, uh, the one big break that I think I've gotten in the last 20 plus years was, uh, when you, uh, drafted me to, uh, to write on the history shapers, uh, series in, from 1999 to 2001, uh, that apparently opened the eyes of some people to Sun Gazette that I had a little bit of writing talent. So I was brought on uh, to work full time there. And that's where I got to do a lot of 
real journalism and, and covering meetings and things of that sort, although I didn't enjoy that as much as I did the uh, history things because I, I enjoy research an awful lot, particularly about history. And so I, you know, I spent a lot of time in my Wayback Machine looking at the, as, as I called the microfilm machine. I was, you know, always referred to it as Lou's Wayback Machine at, at both the library and also there was a, a, a microfilm machine there at the paper, but the one that the uh, library was much easier to read. So I got involved with doing that, and that kind of opened a whole vista for me of uh, historical writing. Although, um, at the, concurrently at the same time, uh, my friend Jim Quiggle and I were working on a book on a history of professional baseball in Williamsport. We had started that in 1991 um, because at that time it looked like professional baseball in Williamsport was coming to an end. The Williamsport Bills were in their last season and it didn't look like anything was going to be returning. So we decided, well, now's a good time to try to write a, a history of it. Now we weren't sure if we'd have a, a you know, someone to, to publish it or anything like that, but we went ahead and started the process of doing the research and doing the writing on it. And it took us seven or eight years to do that whole project. And finally we were very lucky, uh, that Penn state press, uh, asked us to, uh, uh, to do that, uh, or we asked them if they'd let us publish or anything. And they, they seemed interested in that. However, at first they asked us if we'd do a little league book instead. Well, we really didn't want a part of that. And so <laughs> thank you. So I appreciate wanna... that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how you guys got it was, was because of that. Uh, but, um, yeah, we, we didn't, you know, we liked little league, but we, we had a specific thing we wanted to, we, we wanted the history of professional baseball, which in turn is, parallel to the history of little league baseball. I mean, they, one, one, you know, without one being present in the area, it might not have happened. The, the beginnings of little league might not have happened in wave sports. So the, the stories are in, intertwined, intertwined, I guess. Yes, they so are. that's, that's, you know, so that's, so that's, I got, you know, really going with, with writing uh, after that. And I, I worked for the sun Gazette from 1999 till 2000 till January, 2003. And then I started writing for web weekly and I've been, writing for them ever since. And that's a very enjoyable undertaking for me because they may give me full uh, sweep of what I can write. They give me some assignments to do, but also they give me full freedom to come up with my own assignments. So if I suggest certain ideas, they seem to fully embrace them and I'm able to embrace a wider, a wider variety of stories than I could have ever done with the Sun Gazette because, you know, being a daily newspaper, they have their own constraints. Well, as a weekly paper, you know, in a lot of ways, they're hungry for material. So if somebody suggests something that, even, that seems even remotely interesting, they seem to to let me uh, take the ball and run with it. And so I've been able to do that now for the past 15 years. 15 years. That's amazing. I had no idea it had actually been that long. Well, yeah. Uh, come uh, Two weeks from now will be the, t- the 15th anniversary of the first issue of Web Weekly. I never, never imagined that it would last that long. I figured it was one of those... <laughs> papers uh, that would last maybe a year at best because in the past Williamsport had had its own other papers of that sort and uh, they only last a year or two or something like that and I thought that it would be a similar fate but unbelievably enough and thankfully enough it's lasted 15 years and it's given me a a great uh, forum for my writing. So I, I wanted to um, touch back to your 
your experiences with college, and you had mentioned the, you know, the idea of being a rebellious youth. I, I just want to tell you that I teach media writing at Lycoming College, and we have a college newspaper. And just two years ago, I experienced the same kind of situation with a couple of my students. They decided that they wanted to go rogue, and they started working um, with a company called The Odyssey. And The Odyssey is basically the same kind of system of, you know, teenagers who had been in college and were on college newspapers and decided that, you know, they were just simply mouthpieces for the administration. So the Odyssey was created by a couple of college students for college students, and it allowed them to cover a lot of, you know, activities and events that were outside of college, the actual campus, but still related to college students. And so they went rogue and they thought about starting a little you know, club on campus. And um, actually, the Odyssey is going fairly well. Although we have not lost our student newspaper, it is, it is suffering. It is suffering from a lack of attention and um, growing pains. And, you know, the idea that people are no longer interested in that type of journalism. I, I do worry that a lot of colleges are going to experience the same thing, especially when you're talking about news today that comes out on, you know, every two weeks. And that's that's the publishing uh, schedule for a college print newspaper sometimes when you have a small college. Who, you know, who is really interested in reading about an activity that's a week or two week old? They want social media. They want the information now. Well, I don't think it's necessarily bad that some of the stuff is older. Um, I think the thing that troubled me a lot of times, not necessarily with our paper in college, but college papers I've seen in recent years, they have a lot of canned news that deal with, you know, world events and national events and things like that, which, you know, if people want that kind of information, they've got the conventional regular daily papers and things like that. And I think a student paper basically should, you know, now admittedly, those issues invade the, the space of of the campus, and certainly, you know, maybe having a campus interpretation of those events or how it applies to the campus makes sense. But it, it just troubled me to see some of the papers just putting these canned canned commentaries or canned news about uh, events that are going on, you know, throughout the world and things like that. Now, admittedly, it's nice to to have information like that, but I think. You know, in some ways, a, a, a campus paper loses its focus when it starts to get out of that. Yeah, because, again, as I mentioned, if they want that kind of stuff, they can go to regular newspapers for that. I think what they want to do is read about what's going on on campus. Even if it is a week or two old, it's at least an observation about something that went on on the campus and things like that. Our paper, would we would put out twice a week. I mean, the, the conventional campus paper would be put out twice a week. The Gadfly... Probably sometimes we put it out twice in a month. A lot of maybe sometimes it was just once a month. We we self finance and we would take it down to a printer. We would do all the layout ourselves. And this was pre desktop printing and all that type of thing. So we go down and you know and so <clears throat> it'd be much you know today's environment in some ways is less daunting, but in other ways more daunting to try something like that. Oh, I agree. I but agree. I think, I mean, it was very rewarding for us to do that, you know, and I'm still friends with many of the people that were on that gadfly with me. You know, I mean, it was a kind of a seminal experience in some ways for us. You know, it was very something that meant a lot to us. Well, I know that the college newspaper was a seminal event for me. Um, I actually met my husband on the college newspaper. 
Yeah, that uh, that would certainly make it very important. <laughs> In fact, almost well, everybody on the newspaper came to our wedding, you know, like our best, the best man. And we still keep in touch with people, of course, through Facebook and everything. But, yeah, I remember those romantic days where, you know, we would be at the newspaper in the evening, you know, printing out the copy and laying it out on the boards, the pasteboards, and using the blue repro pens, you know, non-repro pens for edits. I missed those days. I used to love paste well, up and layout. Well, you know, the, the atmosphere was different with both pa- with the Gadfly than with the conventional paper. At the conventional paper, we would do a lot of this stuff up in the office at the student union. Uh, with the with the gadfly, we'd go in somebody's apartment and drink beer and 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 come up with stuff and proofread and all that kind of thing. It was a much more relaxed thing. It was a different type of atmosphere. They're, they were both good in their own ways, but it was a very different thing. When, when we had the wake for the professor that that uh, was the uh, the spiritual father of the paper, he died in 2012. Uh, somebody developed a big uh, banner that had had the Gadfly logo on it and hung it up on the against the side of his barn there. And some of the surviving members of the old Gadfly from the late '60s came to the wake, and there were some of us who were with the later incarnation of the Gadfly that so that were there. So that was kind of interesting. As a matter of fact, I, I had my late wife take a picture of all of us together, all the past and present or the gadflies together. So I have a, a nice picture of that. And it's sort of interesting to see, you know, the commonality between the two groups. So when you were talking later about your book with Jim Quiggle, Jim Quiggle is a um, professor and uh, archivist yes. at Penn State University, correct? That's right. Yes, he's a Ph.D., and the two of uh, you were friends. Um, Jim Quiggle grew up here in Williamsport, to the best of my knowledge. And the two of you guys were like yes, pals and buddies. And, and yeah, he, I actually knew him through another friend of mine. You know, I didn't know. I didn't. He graduated. He's three years older than me, so I didn't. I didn't go to school with him. I got to know him through a friend of mine. Well, in the book you're talking yeah. about, the book you're discussing, it's called Gateway to the Majors. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, that book and also about your second book? the Williamsport um, photographic history of baseball that you and Jim created. Could you tell us a little bit about both of those? Well, actually, uh, the, uh, the Sports baseball heritage came first before we were working on gateway of the majors and we were waiting around and waiting around. So he said, we had these photographs that we had come across from the grit and we decided that, well, let's, do a, you know, he had heard about Arcadia publishing and said, let's put together something like that and get that out, you know, while we got this now until, until we get the other thing taken care of. So we put Williams Sports Baseball Heritage out. It's uh, the cookie cutter fashion that most uh, Arcadia books tend to be where you've got photographs and you've got uh, cut lines and then you have a couple of, uh, you know, uh, things at the beginning of each chapter, you know, that just like they normally do. And so we, we were able to put that together and, uh, that, that that we put that out in uh, early 1999, and not long after that, we we met with uh, Peter Potter at at the uh, Penn State Press. He's no longer there, unfortunately. He was a nice man. He was a great uh, and and he, uh, you know, and then we were able to sell him on on doing our book on Gateway of the Majors, uh, which was a history of professional baseball in Williamsport, because baseball in Williamsport goes all the way back to 1865. 
And the first professional baseball goes back to 1877. So we have a long and distinguished history, and we really felt that it should be uh, documented. And so, you know, we did that, and I spent thousands of hours in the library looking over microfilms. Uh, may well have contributed to my uh, uh, blindness that I have. I'm legally blind. I'm, I've, I lost my sight in one eye because I had a... Uh, a cornea transplant that went bad. And so I lost the sight in one eye and I don't see that well out of the other, but that's all right. I guess it's a nice small sacrifice for posterity in some ways, <laughs> so, but it was a good book. I mean, people liked it. We were the finalists for a Casey award, which is one of the, uh, Oh, I don't know how to explain. It's not a real well-known award. It's an award for base best baseball books of a particular year. So, I mean, we feel pretty good about that. You know, we, we thought we, we thought we put out a pretty good project, you know. And actually, it was because of those two books that I met you. When when you came to the Williamsport Sun Gazette with your books, and um, you and Jim, you had just printed these two books. I was the entertainment editor there, and I think you had brought me a press release, the two of you, for you know, to announce that the book had been published and you were having a right. launch and a book signing. And I was, I was captivated. I loved the concept. And, um, thank you so much because you turned down that little league baseball book. They contacted my husband and, um, who is, you know, a vice president over at little league and the director of the little league museum. So we got to put together play ball, the story of little league baseball. And like you, because um, I had a lot of photos that were left over from my research with Little League Baseball. I was able also to create an Arcadia book about the Little League Baseball World Series. So we both had something in common. You and I, we both love history. We both love books and writing and reading. And so that actually created, you know, the basis of a friendship. And you and I became partners in crime, actually. We penned several books together. Talk a little bit about right. our books. Well, I, I think I find I find myself working better in a partnership type situation because I have a lot of certain weaknesses, especially organizationally, and uh, I can bring together a lot of facts and pull them out and things like that. But sometimes I don't necessarily organize them in the way that I should. And um, you were able to 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 do that very well with the books that we worked on. Now I'm not trying to do like a mutual admiration society, but uh, I, I really felt me. that that what you know. <laughs> that was a real strength for me was to have a, and also, you know, having Jimmy Quiggle on the other book was good too, because he brought some organization to what, what I was pulling together too. But I mean, it just, it was a good collaboration that I think worked very well, you know, f for everybody. And I, hopefully to the benefit of the, the readers of our works that, that it did that way. You know, I, well, our first book together, it was the Williamsport, Boomtown on the Susquehanna, and it was an Arcadia book, but that was a little bit different. It was not heavy with the photography. We actually had a chance to put text in there, and that book has been reprinted, I think, six different times by Arcadia. It's one of their better sellers. The rest of our books were, you know, we were involved, we loved looking through the Sun Gazette archives, going in that little bitty, I remember that little bitty storeroom where all the file cabinets, you know, were mm -hmm. stacked up one on top of the other. And, you know, more than a hundred years worth, I think the hundred years worth of photos were stored in there. And I was so distressed because the roof had a big leak and it was pouring 
into that little storeroom and, and we would go in and see that, you know, certain photos or slides were being ruined. The earliest photo I think that I found in that archive was an 1835 photo from Woolrich. Oh from Woolrich. It was yeah. so easy. It was just amazing. And, and then, of course, 1865 here in uh, downtown Williamsport. But, you know, I love those little archives. I wish we could go back. But, you know, you have to keep moving forward. Well, I, I think the Boomtown book had the greatest resonance with people. Betsy, a uh, writer from Otto, said that, you know, it's really the only history of the county that had been done basically since McGinnis, J- John McGinnis had done, although, you know, uh, the WPA John did Piper, one. Yeah, WPA did one, but that's not widely available. And John Piper and Larson and uh, Dr. Larson did one so on Williamsport specifically, but there's some like, some like coming County things with it as well. But that was 25 or so years ago. And it was a little bit different than what we did. So, I mean, Betsy basically said that, you know, this is the only thing like this around right now that's this current. And so I think she found that was one of the reasons why it can continue to sell so well and why, you know, they keep getting printings of it and things like that. So that was, that was our most successful effort in a lot of ways. I, I still feel very pr- great pride in our, uh, book that we did on the like coming counties labor labor heritage and yeah the and industrial heritage the, book right the industrial heritage and the and the uh, book on the on the grit photograph collection grit was good and and the Sun Gazette was gracious enough to have us do those three books for them during their bicentennial which I you know again they were really good and we got a lot of uh, good feedback on that unfortunately they didn't. Uh, published that many copies of it and so right. people are still looking for it now it is sold um, out I, am, I do have it as a pdf if they ever decide they want to you know let it go as a digital version you know i'm i'm able to supply that to them um, you mentioned the sun gazette and the history shaper series what you're talking about there just so that you know anybody listening has a little bit of background on this um, when i was working at the Sun Gazette as a writer and editor in the features and lifestyle entertainment section. Um, I had an idea to start a history series just because it's my passion. I, I'm a historical archaeologist and um, I had been researching local archaeology, local history. And I, I started writing a few of these, you know, history shaper articles. And I wanted to do a series. It, the idea was to do a series that counted down, I think, to um, the year 2000. That may have been my thought process. And um, so Dave Troisi and I, who was the editor-in-chief there, agreed to do this series. But it just became overwhelming for me because, you know, you, you take on a big new project, but you don't take anything off. And so when I met you and I realized that you had the same kind of love for history that I did and that you enjoyed writing, I enlisted you as a freelancer, I think, first with the History Shapers. And then you were able to, you know, use that and leverage your way into a full-time writing job with the Williamsport Sun-Gazette. And and you were there after I left. In 2001, I kind of launched my freelance writing career. Uh, Were you still there at the Sun-Gazette at that time? Yes. And a matter of fact, what I was doing each day on page two, they would have something relating to the so that was the year of the paper's bicentennial. And they would allow me to do some kind of a, you know, some, some historic thing on there about, you know, a lot of times what I would do is I would go back through the files and find some notable thing that happened and how the Sun Gazette covered it. So I basically verbatim would put the, uh, the story, you know, let's say it's a Lindbergh uh, 
1927 or a big fire where a cup, you know, in uh, here in Williamsport, I would put that story from that time on page two. And so we did that every day for 365 days in, in 2001. And that was really enjoyable because it was, uh, you know, I was finding some interest. I, I, I managed to learn about a lot of things. I got to find out, you know, about a lot of people that I didn't know had appeared here in town, like Tallulah Bankhead and, uh, uh, Ella Fitzgerald and different things like that, just by going through and finding these things. So and Helen Keller very... and Martin Luther King and yeah, well, I knew about Martin Luther King being here, but uh, there was other people that I you know was not a, as aware of on, on that. So that was that was an eye opener in itself, and it just was kind of interesting just to go through and, and see Williamsport kind of through the years and the area through the years and through through uh, all kinds of uh, disasters and tragedies and happy times as well so it was it was really kind of a neat thing to to do it was very i think it was probably the most enjoyable uh stuff i did while i was at the sun gazette and then in 2003 you became a freelance writer working with the web weekly which is a tabloid this is like a magazine type of newspaper that is sent free to the residents of Lycoming County and it's advertisement driven. So it became basically a competition for the Williamsport Sun Gazette, especially for advertising dollars. The, the difference is, um, you know, the Web Weekly is not a daily newspaper. It's a weekly, of course, and it's, it relies heavily on a lot of columns. Whereas your articles are a little bit different because you actually are probably one of the few people that's writing news stories and feature stories for that publication. Well, we and, do, uh, what happens a lot of times we do things to promote upcoming events. You know, where I'll, I'll call the organizers of that event and they'll give me information about that and I'll do a story about it. And it helps give their events visibility in the community. So they're very anxious. I mean, we're, we're sort of a go-to place to, to try to, and sometimes I almost feel like um, the organizers of some of these events us and the Sun Gazette against each other. Like, well, you know, uh, Web Wood is going to do it. You guys ought to do something on it or something like that. You know, you hear these kind of things, you know, uh, kind of secondhand yes. and things of that sort, you know. Well, you just but, did you know, a big we, feature, didn't you, on WXPI radio, our community radio station? Tell us a little bit about that. That's story. right. And we, I hope that gives a lot, gives that station a lot more uh, visibility. They haven't had a lot of visibility. I know there's been a few minor uh, features done about it uh, in the Sun Gazette in the past, but it's not been something that a lot of people know that much about. And I hope that what I did in my story last week, uh, you know, might uh, add a little bit pro- higher profile to it in the in the community because it's it's announced. You know, it's a pretty neat idea having community radio, and I I'd like to see it, you know, flourish. It's been around for a while. It's just that it's one of those you know secrets that nobody seems to know about or be inclined to find out about. So I'm hoping through the article I did that it maybe opened some eyes for people on that. Well, it must open their eyes because you did a cover feature. So that means that the story that you wrote dominated the entire front cover of Web Weekly. And it goes out to, I think, anywhere between thirty and 50,000 people on a weekly basis. It's up, it's up to, it's up to 58,000 now. Wow. 58,000 homes uh, in Lycoming County and I think Southern or, you know, Northern uh, Northumberland and far uh, Eastern uh, Clinton County. And I think a little bit of perhaps even uh, Southern, a little bit of Southern Tioga County, something like that. So it gets around quite a bit. It employs quite a few characters. Um, When I say characters, I mean, 
sort of local celebrities. Uh, for example, you are a local celebrity, thanks to Web Weekly and your work, but you also have um, the late Bill Byam wrote for Web Weekly, and then you have Scott Lowry and Ken Hunter and um, oh, Michael Bryan, you know. And Jerry Jerry Ayers has become one, too. You know, he's uh, he's a guy that does the jaded eye uh, <laughs> column. And then you and, have your... And I've known... Tony Silo, who's I mean, Jerry for 20 years ago, you know, Jerry, Jerry and I worked together at uh, Jock's sports, sports, sporting goods store 20 some years ago. So, and Jerry's, a, Jerry's a neat guy. And so he has a, his, his calm, I think is, is a lot of people get a kick out of it because it has some whimsy to it, but it's also kind of interesting. And so he ha- he's, and he's got a real kind of courageous story, but he's battling cancer right now. And sometimes he details some of the, uh, you know, the uh, trials and tribulations of that uh, to kind of humanize that, that battle a little bit. And so that's kind of, some people uh, sort of uh, uh, identify with that. And that's, that makes things kind of interesting too. So you, you all get like um, local followings. Like I said, you're, you are a little bit of a local celebrity because of all your work. And um, in fact, I think it was your celebrity that attracted your wife, Mary. Can you tell us a little bit about Mary? Yeah, my my wife, Mary, who uh, died of leukemia four years ago, um, it was kind of interesting. I, I, a friend of mine fixed me up with her, and uh, we met at one of your book signings. Our, our first date, basically, if you want to call it that, was at one of your book signings at Otto's, and so we seemed to hit it off. And, uh, you know, as, as we were getting to know each other better, I'd be all over the community and different things. And each, and a lot of these different places, people would come up to us and start talking to me about how much they enjoyed my, my stories and different things like that. And she told me that impressed her. She said that, you know, she was still trying to make up her mind about me, I think at that point. And, uh, when she heard that, uh, maybe she decided that was, you know, maybe worthwhile or something. The sexy but, uh, writer. You know, yeah, well, no, I don't think she really looked at it in that way. She just, I guess she saw some stability in me, I guess. In fact, I had some respect in the community and, you know, as, you know, she was somebody that valued stability and, you know, in someone. So I think, I hope that had helped out with that. But after we got married, um, or even before, actually, a couple of times she accompanied me to a couple of stories, you know, uh, just to ride, ride along. And she would see me, you know, gather the information, things like that. And a lot of times then, as I'm writing the story, I'd have her proofread it for me. And uh, she was an excellent proofreader. I mean, she was an accountant by trade. And so she was very used to being meticulous. And so she would pick out things that I did, you know, would miss. And I, that really helped me out a lot. She was my, my own proofreader. When I'd send the stuff over to the web weekly, they didn't need to do much with it because Mary had already pretty well proofed it down for me. So, um, yeah, besides all the other bad losses of losing, my wife, uh, I lost an excellent uh, proofreader too, and uh, she was kind of an inspiration to me to, in, in my writing. And uh, you know, writing is a very lonely profess- profession, but having somebody like her around made it a little bit less so. But uh, you know, it, it, it helped out a lot. So you know, it was, yeah. she means an awful lot to me, and always will. And I think you know, you know, I, I hope that her hand uh, still moves my hand when I. When I go to write. Well, now you remain close to her family, don't you? Yes, I do. I mean, I, I talk periodically to her mother in Canada and I talk to her sisters from time to time and her two children from her first marriage 
are still very close to me, and I I am, uh, come contact them all the time, and they call me, you know, to let me know how they're doing. And uh, the son visits me fairly often, uh, and that type of thing. The other one lives out in Western PA, so I don't see her as much. So I mean, I'm very pleased that you know Mary and I were only together from 2009 till 2014, but you know there was a, a wonderful bond that I managed to to make with her family, and I value that greatly it, it's something that means an awful lot to me to have have them still you know uh value me like they do right so tell me um you you're still working you're still writing but you tell me that you have this disability you're blind in one eye and you have trouble seeing out of the other this is quite a hurdle how are you accomplishing what you need to do as far as research and writing with this kind of a disability well, a lot of times for the data, you know, the, the stories where we're, you know, if, I, if I'm promoting a, an upcoming event or some kind of an entity that's, you know, needs pr- some sort of publicity, I usually, what I, I always have a contact person I talk to on it that, to get the information for the story. Anymore, I, what I try to have them do is email me as much information as possible because I have a computer uh, screen that I have uh, right where, where I can put the font style up at a, you know, at a higher uh, vision and, and things of that sort. So I have them do that and I'll pull the information from, from that. And even, I also ask them along with the information to go ahead and throw some quotes in for me on that too, because a lot of times when I take stories or take information down from somebody, I sometimes have trouble reading my own writing. Now that was also the case before my eyes started to go bad, but it's especially <laughs> problem now. So I find it easier for them to email me the information and then work off of that because I can see that real well. So it curtailed your travel, though, didn't it? Because you lost the yeah, ability to drive. Yeah, I can't drive anymore. I have, to, I have to take the bus or have people take me places uh, on that. Now, I every Friday, I usually go up to the library and go and, and look at the microphones because I have something that I do every week called Through the Years, which is kind of a outgrowth of what I did back with the Sun Gazette where I would take a story from another year and just, you know, put it in there kind of in, you know, verbatim. Now in, in, in the case of, of these, I, I cut it down a little bit. So they're not as, not as long, but I still, uh, check the, the, uh, the, uh, microfilms for, for that. And I get stuff from the Gazette and the old Gazette and Bulletin, but I also get stuff from the grit. I find that, and this was something Mike Rafferty, our old editor, told me way back. He, he wanted me to, whenever I do anything after 1955, I usually pull it out of the grit because I usually don't like to to do a, a reprint of something from the Sun Gazette because it's almost like it's stepping on their toes a little bit too blatantly. So I don't use stories from the Sun Gazette after 1955. If it's an event that happened after 1955, I usually take it from the grit story you know but before that i use it you know anything before 1955 i use from the gazette and bulletin or the williamsport sun or you know or even the williamsport news which was not involved with the sun gazette but sometimes they have good information too so i i will look that off on on the microfilms (laughs) i have more trouble with stuff before 1920 with my eyes because the microfilm is a little harder to read before 1920 than they are after 1920. So I don't go too far back too often with things. Uh, 
and I usually have to equip myself with a, a uh, magnifying glass. So the magnifying glass that works the best for me, I, unfortunately, I either broke or lost, so I'm, I'm not using that. I have other magnifying glasses that were given to me by the Bureau of Blindness and, and Visual uh, services. They they gave me a couple of different, and they're they're the ones that also provide me with my computer uh, that has the capacity to uh, to have uh, bigger print and things like that. They've been wonderful. That's been a they they felt they're they're through the uh, office of uh, vocational rehabilitation, and they feel very strongly about trying to keep people who have disabilities in the workforce by doing finding ways to try to enhance their possibilities of doing it. And they've they've done that with me. They've helped my my freelance writing by providing me with some of the means to, to do that through a better computer and, and uh, some of the other things. So they, they've been good about that and they provide me some things. So that, that has really uh, gone a long ways and helped me continue my freelancing work. Well, let's stay on this topic for just a second. You're an avid reader and you have quite a book collection. Tell me about how reading has changed for you because of your disability. I'm still able to read. However, after it gets dark out and I have to rely entirely on artificial light, it's a little harder and more of a task for me to read because the, the lighting is such that it, I, I can't pick up the letters off the page as well. I can, but it's, a, it's, it's real work to do so and real strain to do so. So a lot of times after about six o'clock at night, I, I don't do much actual reading uh, from books or anything like that. You know, uh, I do any recreational reading basically during the day, you know, and, and, and I still do recreational reading. Okay. Tell me about your book collection. What kind of books do you collect? Well, I'm a pretty eclectic mix, although I have in recent, in, since we started doing the baseball book, I have really leaped into getting books on baseball history. Uh, I probably have about a hundred some books on baseball history or so and and well and a few years back i got really involved in the kennedy assassination and i bought 100 i have 110 books on the kennedy assassination most of which i got from andy winarzik and the last Hurrah bookshop i started collecting those probably about 1987 or 88 and then just stopped a couple of years ago so i have those those are big hunks of my collection right there but i have other <laughs> books on uh, irish history and on russian history and a lot of American history and, you know, labor history and all kinds, anything like that. I don't have a lot of, I don't have novels that much because I, I don't have time to read novels. I, the only, the only novel I have, I have a couple of science fiction books because I took a class in college called learning politics or science fiction. So I have a couple of those around, but I don't really have much in the way of uh, fiction because I just, I have too many things nonfiction that I want to read, and there's a lot of things I haven't read. And what happens inevitably is when I'm up on at the library on Fridays, I'll see a new book that they have, you know, on some historical book or something, and I take that out of the library. And so I read those a lot, and that keeps me away from, uh, you know, reading my own books. And sometimes I'll go over to the like Cumming College Library and and find a book there. I've been a community borrower at the like Cumming College Library since 1979. So you know, I've been using going to their books for, for a long time. Although it's been a while since I've gone over there to, to get a book. Uh, to well, read, next time you, you know. do come on a Tuesday or Thursday and let's have lunch. Come at noon. <laughs> yeah. Well, what do you, I have? usually do that. If, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Usually do that. On a, I usually do that on a Friday when I'm at oh. the, at the, uh, 
James V. James v. Brown. But I, you know, sometimes I'm, you know, I could go up and during the week. <laughs> sure. So, what are you thinking about now? What's for the future? Are you thinking about writing any new books? Has any story come along that's really tickled your interest that you'd like to turn into something? Um, not a lot. I know you and I had talked about that uh, the West Branch Canal thing, and that's never never completely out of my thoughts. I'm just not quite sure how to how to execute it. You know, uh, something like that might be interesting because that's. That would probably be an interesting uh, tale. But again, one of the biggest things for me is just I just I don't have a lot of faith in my organizational skills. And plus, the uh, the visual issue is is uh, something that kind of is a uh, impediment of sorts for me. I, I've uh, overcome it to a degree, but you know, when you're involved in in doing you know books yourself, it's a real problem. I guess I've moved on to encouraging others. Like one of my friends, really good friends. Betty Doremus is a uh, columnist for the Detroit, or she's a retired columnist for the Detroit News. She was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 1992 for some stories she did on the L.A. riots. And uh, she's doing a book, uh, put, the, put together a book on a, a black inventor by the name of Claude Harvard. And for a long time, you know, she's putting together information, but she really wasn't sure she wanted to, to get it out as a book. And because her literary agent kind of discouraged it because they didn't think it'd be much of a seller, so they, she'd lay it off to the side. Well, all of a sudden, the uh, literary agent got enthusiastic about it, so she's now put, putting it together again. So I've been doing my best to encourage her on that and buck her up as far as getting her interested in, in, in finishing that book. And she's going to be putting together a, a proposal this month to try to shop the book around uh, as, as to some place to a commercial publisher. So I've been, in, in some ways, I've been vicariously working through her uh, for, for that in some ways. Well, you mentioned the West Branch Canal, and, and let me just explain to people what that project is. The West Branch Canal was, um, well, it was a project of Richard Mix's. It was his passion. And Richard Mix, when he passed away um, from brain cancer just a, a few years ago, I inherited all of his research. What I would do is I would go to see him on a weekly basis. And you accompanied me a few times. Yes, um, I did. And, yep. and he would go through every single photo and slide and note and, you know, booklet or book or pamphlet that he had in his collection and explain it to me in great detail. And so... Uh, you know, the truth is, I do have to get that book done. And I think that you and I should work on it together as one last hurrah project, because I need somebody to motivate me to finish that project. And you need somebody who can <laughs> do the organization that's needed to get the book accomplished. So why don't we make um, a little proposal right here online? Let's go ahead and put it out there. <laughs> you and I do one more yeah. book together on the West Branch Canal. Let's get it done. I still have some of his stuff here actually too. Some of the stuff's in in my basement here. So I well, mean I've got three I can join boxes. Some of I've got three boxes. But you've got more up. than what I've got on yeah, it. Yeah. I've got them they're stacked up right yeah. here next to my window seat. Um I don't know what well, I would the, do. The funny thing is it's it's yeah. a the funny thing is it's a worthwhile project because the West Branch Canal is extremely important in the development of this area. I mean it was a precursor to the railroads and it it is an important, interesting story. So you know, it's it's definitely worth, you know, trying to do something on. And, uh, you know, I think people, I mean, I, 
still get a lot of people asking me, what, what, what's your next book going to be? Or what, you know, this, and you probably have some of that too. I do. So, I mean, and I never know what to tell them. Well, now you do. <laughs> we're going to work on the West Branch Canal and we're going to dedicate it to Richard and Miriam. Right. That's, Nick's. Well, that's, it's their, you know, we hope that that's their legacy in a sense that we can, we can do that from because they were wonderful people and they <clears throat> contribute a lot to this area. And, uh, I don't know that people can fully appreciate what impact they really left here. You know, a lot of people know, you know, you know, they remember them, but still there's a lot of people who don't, who uh, need to realize, you know, how special they really were as far as the, the life and legacy of this area in a lot of ways. So I guess we could help out with that. I still have a message on my cell phone, um, a voice recording from him. The last message he left, I think it was like two days before he passed away. Um, of course, I returned the call. <laughs> it would have been really tragic if did. I hadn't. <laughs> but yeah, Richard, yeah. I got really close with him at the end because um, he had been living alone for a few years after passing, you know, Miriam's passing. Um, but yeah, I have a fondness in my heart for Richard and for Miriam. So let's get this well, done. Well, you know, when, when Miriam died, I remember how broken up Richard was about it. And at the time, I had no conception. I, I just thought, well, you know, that's too bad, but you know, you got to get on with it. Well, then, then the same thing happened to me. And now I can understand a lot more what he went through and, you know, how courageous he was to, to keep going through and doing what he did, you know? So, you know, I now have an appreciation, more of an appreciation for him and what he's gone through, you know, the things. So he was a uh, fourth grade teacher at Los Elementary School when I was there. Uh, my sisters both had him as homeroom teachers, and they always liked him a lot. My mom was a great mother, and she could remember a couple of times he would take the kids from the class down to the museum to show them things, you know. And so then they thought that, you know, that was kind of a fun thing for them to do. And my mom enjoyed doing that and thought he was an And he and I were in the uh, bicentennial pageant of 1976 up at Bowman Field uh, with that, too. So that was kind of fun to being involved with that, you know. And then we all so, got to work together again on the 2006 Bicentennial for this, well. The, the city cities. of Williamsport, yes. Yeah. yeah, that was so, you know, it's been, been a lot of interesting historic-related things that we've been involved in, and, I, you know, I feel pretty good to have been involved in it, and, you know, I, I'm glad we've been able to do something to, to help nurture and, and promote the heritage that we have here because we have an interesting and wonderful heritage here that's worth worth remembering and letting, you know, future generations know about, and certainly the present generation for that matter. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Lou. I've kept you long enough, but is there anything you'd like to add? Any last words? Offhand, no. It's just that, you know, writing is something, it's a passion, but it's also, you know, it's a, as I said, it's a very solitary uh, uh, undertaking, but it's, it's, it's well worth it, and it does provide you, in some ways, a, a measure of immortality, I guess, if, if you get you know, printed in the right places, I guess, or, or even in the wrong places, for that matter. But it is uh, it's something, you know, it's, it's a worthwhile thing, and uh, I do enjoy it. I mean, there are times I find it very taxing, because for me, the worst thing is trying to figure out how to start off whatever story I'm writing. That's by far the hardest thing to, to come up with the lead for the story you're doing. Once you get past that, then you then you're pretty much able to go through the whole body of what you're writing. But getting started is always in a story is always the hardest part for me. 
I don't know if you find it that way. Oh, Lou, (laughs) that's so funny because that is always the most difficult part of writing. And when I was a journalist at the newspaper, it was my big stumbling block. So I created this little system where I would write a couple of words, just a couple of words up at the top and say, okay, I'm going to put my lead here, but I'm just going to go ahead and start with the second paragraph now. And that is what I did every time to get me over that stumbling block. And almost always I would go back and reread my story and realize that the lead was the second paragraph after all. So don't, don't. Yeah. A lot of times I can't get this. I can't get get myself to the second paragraph until I come up with a first in a so, lot of ways. So don't so make yourself give a first. Don't even put yourself in a situation yeah. where you have to have a first. Just put a couple of little keywords that anchor it and say, I'll come back. I'll come back to you when I'm ready. Because it will come to you, but it's not going to come to you if you force it. Right. Well, a lot of things you have to remember, you know, what, what are the key points you want to put in the article? And once you figure that out, then I guess you could play around with it to the point where you can get, get, you know, lead into it, you know, but the biggest thing is trying to figure out, okay, this is what I have to tell people in this. And usually a lot of times, once you identify that, that leads you into figuring out, okay, this is, this is what it needs to start off as, you know? Yes. So that seems to work that way. Well, thank you so much, Lou. I appreciate you being thank a you. part of this and I'll talk to you later. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Lou Hunsinger, and it inspires you to think about your community's history. Take a look through the old newspaper on microfilm. Dig out some old photos and look through them. Did someone famous visit your town? Is there a catastrophe or a celebration that needs remembering? How will you help preserve your town's past? You can find Lou's books online at Amazon, and you can find me at robinvanauken.com. While you're on my site, Download my novel, West Wind. It's free. And speaking of free, I've got half a dozen resources for writers and other creatives, so sign up today. Check out the episode and show notes at robinvanauken.com, section 7. Thank you so much, and if you haven't done so, please hit that subscribe button on your device. Until next time, goodbye.